Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, As we promised back in July, we have some unearthed for the fall Because we were so overwhelmed with cool finds in that first half of the year, our July episode of Unearthed, which was a two-parter, covered things that had been literally or figuratively unearthed between January and the end of May 2019, or at least that's when we heard about those findings. Today, we are mostly looking at June, July, August. There are a couple of exceptions. And Unearthed for this fall is just one part this time around that's going to tide us over until our year-end Unearthed installments. Uh, and since this is coming out just on the cusp of our favorite month on the podcast, which is October, we have saved most of the more creepy, scary, eerie stuff for the end of this episode. Hooray! Creepy and eerie. So first we're going to kick off with past episode updates. And this is more recent than the June, July, August time frame that Tracy just mentioned. But since it is all over the news, uh, we talked about the financial struggles of travel agency Thomas Cook this past July and on September 23rd, just three days before we went into the studio to record this. Uh, the company collapsed and very abruptly ceased operations, leaving hundreds of thousands of travelers stranded. Obviously, uh, the effects of that are still ongoing. I know some other airlines had stepped up and offered to get people back to their homes in some locations, depending on where they lived. And hopefully everybody at this point is home safe. Yeah, <laughs> but what I, I an ordeal. Uh, Yeah, there were something like 150,000 people just from Britain, and it was being called the biggest peacetime repatriation effort in British history. Yeah. That's not technically an unearthed thing, but it's been such a huge news story, and we have gotten so many uh, have-you-seen-this links that I thought we'd mention it. Yeah, I had friends pinging me within minutes of the news hitting. They were like, didn't you just talk about this? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I did. I I, (laughs) did. I got to my desk and our Twitter mentions were all links to the news story. Uh, Moving on. The National Sound Library of Mexico has announced the discovery of what may be the only recording of Frida Kahlo's voice. It's from the pilot episode of a Mexican radio show called El Bachier, and archivists found it while they were digitizing recordings earlier this year. In the recording, the speaker is identified only as a painter who is no longer living. Kahlo died on July 13, 1954, and the radio episode came out the following year. The speaker reads part of an essay called Portrait of Diego, which Kahlo wrote about her husband, Diego Rivera. One of Diego Rivera's daughters has also said that she recognizes the voice as Kahlo's. So it seems likely that this is Kahlo's voice, but there is still some work that has to be done to confirm it. Previous host's two-parter on Frida Kahlo came out in 2012. And another find, what's been described as a sorcerer's treasure trove was unearthed at Pompeii. This is a trunk that contains things like crystals, amber, dolls, amulets, beetles, and a tiny skull. The site's director, Massimo Asana, described this trunk as containing lots of objects that are meant to bring good luck, along with ones that were meant to drive out bad luck. 
What the trunk did not include was a lot of gold jewelry or other expensive items. So it might have belonged to someone employed or enslaved by the household rather than the owners of the home. The Pompeii episode in the archive dates back to 2009, and it has come up in previous Unearthed episodes as well. In Stonehenge news, researchers have long known about traces of animal fat on fragments of pottery found at the Stonehenge site, and the general conclusion had been that this was fat used for cooking and that maybe it was connected to some kind of festival or religious observance. But new research suggests that these pottery vessels, I mean, these are little pieces of them, not whole pots, So the research suggests that they were not the size of cooking pots or dishes used for eating or serving, that they were much bigger, more like great big buckets. So the new hypothesis is that perhaps these buckets were filled with large amounts of fat, which was used to help transport the stones themselves from where they were quarried to the Stonehenge site. The basic idea is that the blue stones used as part of the Henge's construction were loaded onto sledges, which were pulled along a track made of logs. And to make all of that effort easier, the logs were greased with animal fat that was stored in these big pottery buckets. Uh, We did a whole unearthed episode just on Stonehenge in 2014. Yeah, there had been big Stonehenge discoveries that year, and I planned to include them. And then I was like, wait, we've never talked about Stonehenge in general at all. I vaguely recall you sending me a message and going, have we really never had a Stonehenge episode? <laughs> I was like, I don't In recall. In fact, we had not. Uh, we did an episode on the Nazca Lines in 2013, and earlier this year, researchers studying them looked at 16 geoglyphs of birds to try to conclude which specific birds they represent. And in the words of Masaki Ida of the Hokkaido University Museum, quote, until now, the birds in these drawings have been identified based on general impressions or a few morphological traits present in each figure. We closely noted the shapes and relative sizes of the birds, beaks, heads, necks, bodies, wings, tails, and feet, and compared them with those of modern birds in Peru. As a result, they have reclassified a hummingbird glyph as a hermit and both a guano bird and a previously unidentified bird as pelicans. They also noted several birds that were previously described as condors don't actually match up to condor physiology, but they weren't able to determine what bird they might more accurately represent. Interestingly, these newly identified birds are birds that live in Peru, but not in the same area where the Nazca lines are. And that's bolstered the hypothesis that the people who made these glyphs were representing birds that were very special or unusual or rare. Archaeologists at Bradgate Park in Leicester, England, believe they may have found the remains of the home of Lady Jane Grey. We talked about her in our 2017 episode called Lady Jane Grey, the Nine-Day Queen. Excavations in this area have been ongoing since 2015, and earlier this year they uncovered previously unknown stone structures that were underneath still-standing buildings. So it had already been established that Bradgate House was Lady Jane Grey's original home, but this finding suggests that when she was actually living, it was in these recently unearthed structures, not in the buildings that are still standing. Barcelona City Hall has issued a work permit for the completion of La Sagrada Familia Basilica, which we talked about in our 2015 two-parter on Antoni Gaudi. Uh, Gaudi designed the basilica almost 140 years ago, but it has never been finished. It's been an 
ongoing project throughout that mm-hmm. time. Uh, builders now have a license to work on it through 2026, which they hope will be enough time to actually complete it. I was telling someone about this the other day, and I was like, I feel like all of these should have, but we mean it this time Yeah, at the end of it, which I understand like a construction project of that scale comes with challenges I do not even understand. So that was <laughs> not meant to be insulting to anyone. It's just been going on for a long time. Yeah. Well, and then La Sagrada Familia has its own special difficulties as far as, like, what they're having to work from because the original plans, like, are are no longer exist. So, like, they're having to piece together knowledge of what it was supposed to look like. There's a whole huge debate about whether it should be ever completed at all. It's a whole saga. We talk about it more in those episodes. Uh, I think there's also an episode of 99% Invisible about it. Uh, anyway. During Unearthed in 2016, we spent a fair amount of time talking about discoveries at Must Farm because there were a lot of them. This site is home to a settlement that was destroyed by fire about 3,000 years ago. And so when we talked about it previously, teams had just finished a massive excavation, and that excavation had yielded about 180 textile items, more than 150 wooden artifacts, pottery, metalwork, and beads, along with the remains of the structures themselves. It was a lot of stuff, and a lot of it very well preserved. And headlines at the time called this site things like the Pompeii of the Fens. In June, archaeologists from Cambridge Archaeological Unit published a timeline of Must Farm. In the words of site director Mark Knight, quote, it is likely that the settlement existed for only one year prior to its destruction in a catastrophic fire. The short history of Must Farm, combined with the excellent preservation of the settlement, means that we have an unparalleled opportunity to explore the daily life of its inhabitants. I thought that was a really cool update to something that had been just a huge find. Uh, with so much research back when we talked about it a couple of years ago, and then to for it to turn out that the settlement itself probably only existed for a year before the fire happened. In Unearthed in 2018, we talked about the return of some objects that had been illegally acquired and sold by art dealer Subhash Kapoor, not to be confused with the film director of the same name. In July, it was announced that prosecutors in New York have charged Kapoor with trafficking more than $140 million in stolen antiquities. He's currently on trial in India, so officials in the United States have requested that he be extradited after that trial is complete to face these new charges. This has been an enormous case. It has spanned more than 30 years and involved thousands of artifacts, some of which wound up in the collections of some of the world's most prestigious museums. A statue of the Egyptian god Amun with features of King Tutankhamun was sold to an unknown buyer for roughly $6 million on July 4th. This was over the objection of Egyptian authorities, who believed the statue was illegally looted in the 1970s. They demanded that Christie's Auction House cancel that auction and return the artifact, and also contacted the British government and UNESCO to try to stop the sale. Protesters demonstrated outside the auction itself. Christie's went ahead with the auction, though, and afterward, Egyptian officials announced their intention to file a lawsuit. The Egyptian foreign ministry also called for the auction house to remove all Egyptian artifacts from their auctions until they could prove that they had valid certificates of ownership for each one. 
A spokesperson from Christie's responded, quote, it is hugely important to establish recent ownership and legal right to sell, which we have clearly done. We would not offer for sale any object where there was concern over ownership or export. The episodes we have in the archive about King Tut are from 2008 and 2010. And now we're moving into uh, the segment that Tracy titles Cannonballs and Other Stuff. Uh, Our last episode update is a bit of a segue into several Cannonball-related finds. There is an old and very brief episode on Vlad Tepes, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Dracula, in our archives circa 2008. And earlier this year, archaeologists in Bulgaria announced that they believe they have found some of his cannonballs, specifically the cannonballs he fired at Zhistova Fortress while laying siege to it in 1461. In the words of lead archaeologist Nikolay Ovsharov, quote, What's really interesting is that from the early Ottoman period, we have found cannonballs. We rejoice at these small cannonballs because they are from culverins. These were the earliest cannons, which were for the 15th century, up until the 16th century. They weren't in use after that. These were still very imperfect cannons. That was precisely the time of Vlad Dracula. There is no doubt that they are connected with the siege and then, parenthetically, and the conquest of the Zistova Fortress by Vlad Dracula in 1461. The study at this fortress has also unearthed a lot of non-Dracula findings, including an inscription that dates back to the 4th century CE and coins dating back to the 13th and 14th centuries. All of this was technically reported at the end of May, but I really could not resist talking about Dracula's cannonballs. <laughs> In other cannonball news, a team of archaeologists in Scotland have found a number of artifacts at Glen Shiel in the highlands of Scotland. And this includes musket balls and mortar shells that government forces fired at Jacobite forces at the Battle of Glen Shiel on June 10, 1719. This battle happened between two Jacobite uprisings that we talked about in our episode on that subject. Yeah, I went back and looked to see if we had mentioned this one at all, and it appears that we did not. Cannonballs, musket balls, and other similar items are also being unearthed at the site of a field hospital from the Battle of Waterloo. Mont-Saint-Jean Field Hospital treated at least 6,000 wounded soldiers during the battle, That included William II of the Netherlands, the Prince of Orange, and Lieutenant Colonel Lord Fitzroy Somerset, who was the Duke of Wellington's military secretary. This team has also unearthed a number of bones from amputated limbs. And we're going to take a quick break before we move on to some oldest and first finds. Okay, we have a few things that are the oldest or the first of their kind to be found. First up, a mace head is the first Bronze Age object to be found in Poland, but originating from a culture that wasn't already living in the place where it was found. So not the oldest thing ever found in Poland, but the oldest thing that was from a culture that wasn't living there at the time. This mace head is made of bronze. It dates back to about 1000 BCE, and the team that found it does not know precisely which culture it did come from, just that it was not from Poland. They said that it may have come from somewhere in the Middle East. A 10,000-year-old stone found south of Rome in 2007 
might be the world's oldest lunar calendar, according to research published this year. It's a small stone that fits in the palm of a person's hand, and it's marked with a series of notches along three of its edges. There are 27 or 28 notches. One of them is a little unclear, and their distribution does seem to align with the phases of the moon. Moving on, a canoe found in Kennebunkport, Maine, is being described as a major find in Native American history. This canoe was made from a hollowed-out birch tree, and it was found in the Cape Porpoise Harbor on June 1st. It's believed to be the oldest dugout canoe ever found in Maine. Archaeologist Tim Sparr spotted the canoe sneaking out of the mud during low tide while he was doing a routine survey. Other dugout canoes have been found in Maine before, but all of them were created after the arrival of Europeans in the area. This one appears to be at least 700 years old, and if that's the case, it was made hundreds of years before Europeans tried to colonize the area. Archaeologists plan to preserve, restore, and study the canoe, which is a process expected to take at least two years. Yeah, anytime there's a a wooden thing like this found in the seawater, there's a whole process to make sure that it just doesn't fall apart once it's taken out of the water. This is an important find not only for the study of how canoes like this were made, but also of the ongoing research into the native settlements of Algonquin-speaking peoples in Cape Porpoise. Before we move on, we talk about oldests and firsts a lot on Unearthed, but we also have some archaeological work that illustrates how the field isn't only about studying stuff from the distant past. Binghamton University's Public Archaeology Facility and the Museum at Bethel Woods Center for the Arts have worked together on an archaeological dig at the site of Woodstock, whose 50th anniversary was earlier this summer. Last year, archaeologists pinpointed the location of the stage, and this year they found the locations of 24 vendor booths and other features in the area known as the Bindi Bazaar. Interestingly, they found that the position and layout of these booths did not quite match up to maps that were produced 50 years ago. The Bendy Bazaar trail system was also restored and opened to the public earlier this year, but an unrelated 50th anniversary concert uh, scheduled to be in another site was just canceled abruptly two weeks before it was supposed to happen. That is a whole story of its own (laughs) outside the scope of this podcast. In 50 years, we could talk about that. Um, Next, we are moving on to one of my favorite things, which is textile finds. Uh, And we have just a couple of them. Back in our brief history of colors, we talked about the dye known as tekelet, which was most likely made from the glands of maritime snails of the Murex family. That is the most common description at this point, though there are still some other possibilities as to the source of that color that have been proposed. And this was a blue to purple dye that has religious significance in Judaism and is repeatedly mentioned in scripture. We also talked about it very briefly in our live show, The Mysteries of the Color Blue. That live show has already happened at this point, but the episode uh, that we are publishing using that audio has not come out yet, so hang tight. It's coming. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's the one of the magical mysteries of doing live shows and then having them be podcasts later. So evidence of a Tehelet dye factory dating back to at least the first millennium BCE has been found at Tel Shikmona near Haifa in what's now Israel. And at first, archaeologists thought that this site had been home to a settlement, but it seemed like a really weird place for a settlement to be. It was way out on a rocky promontory, it was inaccessible by boat, and it was far away from any major land route. 
But it turns out this location gave it very easy access to cliffs where those marine snails would have been very plentiful. Also, among the team's findings when they were excavating the site were lots of pottery vessels stained with blue and purple dye. Engineers from Northern Power Grid in York, England, found a decorated piece of leather showing what looks like a dragon, with a long body, four limbs, and a pair of wings. And the crew found this piece while they were working on the electrical system, and they handed it over to York Archaeological Trust. And it was believed to date back to the medieval period, but that particular uh, little textile find has not received conclusive results on any of their, their research yet. Yeah, and if you want to see what it looked like, I recommend Googling something like uh, Northern Power Grid Dragon Leather (laughs) or something similar to that. Uh, But then kind of scroll through the image results a little bit because the most widely published pictures of it have the outline of the dragon kind of drawn over digitally in a way that looks kind of like clip art. It's doofy looking, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) And the actual piece without that overlay looks a lot cooler. Uh, Now we will move on to something that's always just one of my favorite things, which is the edibles and potables, starting with something that was made from edible ingredients but maybe not meant to be eaten. Researchers studying a Bronze Age hill fort in Austria found a collection of strange ring-shaped objects which looked like they were made from clay but were really made from cereals. They were made from finely ground barley and wheat that was mixed with water and kneaded into a dough and then shaped into rings and dried. I mean, it just sounds like old Cheerios to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) The first Cheerios... No, that's not what they are. Uh, The team has not conclusively determined what these rings were for. These cereal rings would have been time and labor intensive to make, and they don't really resemble foods that have been discovered at the site. They do resemble other objects found at the site that are believed to be loom weights, leading to the hypothesis that they were lookalikes made for some kind of ritual purpose. But it is still not entirely clear, though, what they are. Yeah, it's, it's, there's sort of the question of if it took this much effort and time and also food product <laughs> that you're not going to eat to make these, like, it has to have been for something. Moving on. As documented in a widely shared Twitter thread, Seamus Blackley traveled to the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard to try to collect yeast samples from Egyptian pottery. These samples, if they are really yeast from when the things were created, would be about 4,500 years old. They were collected with the help of Dr. Serena Love and PhD student Richard Bowman. These samples were collected from vessels used to make beer and bread, and they were taken in a sterile, non-invasive way. In August, Blackley baked bread with some of it, using fresh-milled organic ancient grains. So as of August 5th, there was still work to be done to confirm that what came through this whole process really did include ancient strains of yeast. I mean, there's yeast everywhere, all the time. (laughs) You can ferment things using just wild yeast that's around in the air. So it's possible that that what was at work was not ancient yeast. But according to the Twitter thread, the bread itself was delicious. That's really all that matters. <laughs> yeah. We, we've had a number of things that people made with ancient ingredients that did not turn out to be delicious. So I'm glad that this bread was apparently very good. Yes. Uh, According to research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, people in northern China developed two distinctly different methods of trying to make beer. 
This conclusion comes from the analysis of 7,000 to 8,000-year-old pottery fragments at two different sites. And at both of the sites, the pottery fragments had granules of cereal starches that showed evidence that they had been fermented. One of the sites is called Linku, and it appears that people living there just let the grains sprout. And then 3,000 kilometers away at a site called Guataoyang, people seem to have used sort of a starter to start the process of breaking down the starches in these grains. This starter seems similar to a fermentation starter called Ku, which is still made today from molded grains and used to produce alcoholic beverages from cereals in some parts of the world. Patrick McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology also suggested that because it would have taken such large quantities of grain to do this, beer making might have inspired people to start cultivating grains, an idea that has come up on Unearthed before. Yeah, both beer and bread. Did people start making bread because they had figured out how to cultivate grains, or did they figure out how to cultivate grains because they wanted to eat bread? I mean, I can't fault them. Me neither. Researchers in France have discovered a 900-year-old grape seed that is genetically identical to Savoyant Blanc grapes that are grown today. That means that today's Savoyant Blanc has been growing for at least 900 years, all tracing back to this one ancestral plant. And to be clear, this is a particular regional wine, not the more commonly known and widely distributed Sauvignon Blanc. So... Very similar sounding, not the similar same. Similar sounding. The identically genetic seed is uh, spelled S-A-V-A-G-N-I-N uh, rather than what you would be more likely to see on the shelf at the wine store. And this team was looking at the seeds from several varieties of wine grapes. And while they found other connections between species, this was the only one that was an identical genetic match. We also had some unearthings that were more about where to get your food and beverage than the food and beverage itself. An 18th century Scottish pub was unearthed in the Scottish Highlands, and that site included lots of drinking vessels like goblets and tankards. And then a completely different 18th century pub was unearthed in eastern North Carolina, also filled with things like mugs and goblets. The North Carolina find also included a brass tap from a wine barrel. Now we're shifting gears to a little bit of medical history. For the first time, researchers have found genetic evidence that the Justinianic Plague, a.k.a. the Justinian Plague, reached Britain and Ireland. The plague started in the year 541, and it continued to circulate for about 200 years after that. We already had plenty of written records documenting this plague, which killed as much as 25% of the Roman world at the time. And researchers had already concluded that the plague was caused by Yersinia pestis. But we didn't have direct genetic evidence of the plague everywhere that we thought it probably struck. And records detailing some kind of pestilence in Britain and Ireland in the year 544 were also a little ambiguous in their descriptions. So it wasn't totally clear that the illness that struck there was the same illness that was striking in other places. Not only did this research lead to conclusive evidence of the plague in Britain and Ireland, but it also unearthed a lot more diversity in the disease itself than was previously known. After studying remains from 21 sites in Austria, Britain, Germany, France, and Spain, the team documented eight new Yersinia pestis genomes. 
According to research published in the June 2019 edition of the journal Antiquity, a midden in the prehistoric village of Kchatauhyuk in what's now Turkey has provided the oldest archaeological evidence of an intestinal parasite infection in humans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we love middens. These are basically trash heaps, and they can provide a wealth of information about the society that was dumping their rubbish there. In the case of Kchatauhyuk, people also used the midden as a toilet, either going directly into the midden or perhaps carrying their waste from their homes to the midden in something kind of similar to a chamber pot. This team studied both the midden and burial sites, the waste that may have been expelled from a body after it was buried. They retrieved samples from each of them and then confirmed that the samples from the midden were of human origin, since it's also likely that animals might have relieved themselves in the midden. Then they looked for evidence of whipworm infection, which they found in two of the samples from the midden. To quote from a press release, quote, it was a special moment to identify parasite eggs over 8,000 years old, uh, said the study co-author Evelina Anastasio. In a separate paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, an international team of archaeologists has published findings from an extensive study of this same site. And in the words of lead author Clark Spencer Larson, this 9,000-year-old community was, quote, one of the first proto-urban communities in the world. And the residents experienced what happens when you put many people together in a small area for an extended time. <laughs> many things that happen include overcrowding, infectious disease, crime, and environmental issues. Uh, here's some other toilet-related history. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some new findings from Vindolanda near Hadrian's Wall, including a 2,000-year-old gaming board meant to be played in a bathhouse, as well as some gemstones that had fallen down a toilet. Uh, the gemstones date back about 1,800 years, and they were carved with symbols. It was a common practice to wear these as rings, but it was also common for the adhesive that held the gem into the ring setting to fail. So probably whoever was wearing these rings lost the stone <laughs> while they were on the toilet, and uh, uh, that means they're gone. Yeah, not, not going after that. No, apparently not. And in one last bit of toilet news, a team in Bulgaria found an ancient chamber pot which seems to have been sized for children or perhaps for small adults or maybe for very careful use by typically adult-sized adults. We are going to take uh, one more little sponsor break and then we will get to the various uh, scary and creepy and more Halloween-y stuff that, we, that is, is uh, more characteristic of our, our October time. Okay, since we're leading into October here, in a random bit of alarming news, a cube of uranium was delivered to Timothy Koth at the University of Maryland College Park in 2013. This cube of uranium came with a note that said it was from a reactor that Hitler had tried to build. Based on their study of this cube, Koth and PhD candidate Miriam Hybert traced the origins of this cube, and they published their work in Physics Today in May. It didn't cross their radars until June, though. One of their conclusions was that the German scientists did indeed have the capability to build a working nuclear reactor during World War II. What got in the way was that two different teams making uranium cubes to power that reactor were competing rather than working together. 
One team made about 600 cubes, and another team made about 400, neither of which was enough to power a reactor. But together, if they had combined their efforts, it could have worked. Yes, so the the basic general idea of uranium cubes tied to Hitler's nuclear reactor, like, that's inherently kind of alarming. But just to put people's mind at ease, the cube is made from natural uranium. It's not radioactive enough to be especially dangerous by itself. But there are also hundreds of similar cubes dating back to this era that are still unaccounted for. (laughs) Uh, Cue lots of fun theories that make great uh, ghost stories for late at night. Um, (laughs) Moving on to an inherently macabre topic, but much beloved, exhumations. On September 24th, Spain's Supreme Court announced that the remains of Francisco Franco can be exhumed from the Valley of the Fallen, something that we have been talking about since our episode on Franco came out in 2018. The court also rejected the family's requests to have him buried at a cathedral in central Madrid, instead ruling that he will be reinterred next to his wife in a cemetery in El Pardo, which is a ward of Madrid farther out to the north of the city proper. This is one of those things where I had finished the whole rest of this outline, and I just had this page open on my screen, waiting for the announcement of of what they were going to rule, which I knew was due on September 24th. I was just like, come on now. I need I need the Franco <laughs> news. Uh, even with that court ruling, though, it is not clear when the exhumation might take place or whether that will be before Spain's November 10 election. We'll see. I want to somehow make a jokey way to tie it to the Sagrada Familia, but that seems wrong. <laughs> Uh, In other exhumation news, though, there has been a lot of talk this summer about the potential exhumation of John Dillinger. Also, this is technically an update. Prior hosts did an episode on Dillinger in 2011. Two relatives said they had evidence that the body in Dillinger's grave is not really his. They plan to exhume it and have it tested and to have all of that featured on a History Channel documentary. So the basic idea here is that perhaps the FBI really killed someone else in 1934 and then buried that person in the notorious gangster's place. The FBI did not give this a lot of credence, though, saying that they had fingerprint evidence and other indicators that the body was really, yes, John Dillinger. In July, the Indiana State Department of Health approved a permit for the exhumation. But Crown Hill Cemetery, where the body is buried, objected. The cemetery issued a statement that read in part, quote, We also have concerns that the complex and commercial nature of this exhumation could cause disruption to the peaceful tranquility of the cemetery and those who are visiting to remember their loved ones. This has been kind of a theme in very high-profile exhumations, that have also been planned to be covered as television specials, where the cemetery has been like, uh, we kind of would like to have a respectful environment here for the other people who have loved ones buried, rather than having a giant TV spectacle tied to this. This exhumation was supposed to happen on September 16th, but instead everyone went to court. Marion County Superior Court Judge Timothy Oakes set a hearing date of October 10th, which was, of course, after the date when the exhumation was supposed to have happened, and that led History Channel to announce it wasn't going to do this TV documentary after all. That was still not the end of the saga, though. Uh, Dillinger's nephew, Michael Thompson, announced that he still wanted to go ahead with the exhumation, even without the History Channel's involvement, because, quote, I simply wish to confirm that the body in the grave is that of my uncle. 
The family applied for a new permit, this time requesting an exhumation date of December 3rd, with the remains being reinterred on the 17th, so two weeks later. And at this point, it's an ongoing story that will continue to unfold after we have recorded this episode, so see you in November, or see you in December, rather. (laughs) It would not surprise me at all if we walk out of the studio today and there's some new news about this whole exhumation saga. Uh, Moving away from exhumations, we have more than one lake full of bones to talk about. Well, sure. About 700 years ago, bodies were buried in a lake in Levanuta in southwest Finland. And this was a practice that went on for at least 400 years, but it was only discovered when people started digging trenches in the area in the 19th century. They started unearthing skulls and other human remains that they did not expect to find there. Water burials like this are unique, and researchers speculated that this may have been a sacrificial spring. An excavation in 2010 unearthed about 75 kilograms of bone material, making up the remains of 98 people, which appeared to be mostly women and children. The team analyzed these remains using DNA sequencing, hoping to figure out who these people were and why they were buried underwater, relatively far from the nearest known settlement. So they didn't find any clear answers as to why these remains were buried in this way. But the DNA analysis suggests that these people were Sami people whose descendants live in northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia today. This is the first conclusive evidence of their presence this far south in Finland. Another study at the same site looked at the jewelry the deceased were wearing when they were buried in the lake. These were arm rings and necklaces made from copper alloy, bronze, or brass. And the findings suggest that these were locally made with imported materials from as far away as Greece and Bavaria. And in the other Lake of Bones, Rupkund Lake in the Himalayan mountain range has been nicknamed Skeleton Lake thanks to the skeletal remains of at least 800 people in and around it. And based on DNA studies that were conducted in the early 2000s, researchers thought these were the remains of people who were all native to South Asia and had all died in one catastrophic event, which happened sometime around the year 800. Research published in the journal Nature Communications in August calls all of that into question. The team studied the DNA of 38 skeletons from the lake and found that they fell into three distinct groups. One group containing 23 sets of remains was of South Asian origin as expected, but another group of 14 skeletons had Mediterranean ancestry from Greece and Crete. The one skeleton not accounted for in those two groups seems to have come from Southeast Asia. Also, it no longer appears that all the bodies in and around this lake wound up there around the year 800. That does seem to be the case for the bodies that were of South Asian origin, but as for the rest, they are more recent, dating back to about 1800. And there are still lots of unanswered questions about how these remains came to be there, whether there were perhaps two different groups, each caught in some kind of epidemic or natural disaster. Local folklore attributes it to the goddess Nanda Devi, who struck down a royal retinue visiting her shrine during a pilgrimage called the Raj Jat because they were not behaving appropriately. And it is a mystery how people from the Mediterranean came there. Yeah, there's a... Total unknown. Were they on a pilgrimage also? Was it some kind of expedition? Not clear. 
And we have one last eerie unearthing to close out on. A so-called vampire burial in the early 19th century in Connecticut has been tentatively identified as a farmer named John Barber, thanks to DNA evidence. This person probably died from tuberculosis, and then in the middle of a vampire panic brought on by fears of the disease, his family exhumed the body and attempted to take out his heart, It had been long enough since he had been buried that the heart itself was decomposed, so instead they rearranged his head and limbs to form a skull and crossbones shape. And the coffin that he was buried in was found in a quarry in 1990. It was marked JB55, likely standing for his initials and his age when he died. Yeah, we've talked about vampire panics on the show before, but this is a different one. So many vampire panics to go around. There are. There have been many. Uh, Do you have some listener mail to go around? I do have some listener mail. It came from Mike. Mike says, hello, thanks to my sister, I recently learned that Wisconsin lawmakers are proposing legislation to prevent plant-based products from being labeled as meat or milk in the state. I pointed out our state's history of laws to promote butter over margarine. Of course, my sister asked if I had learned that from stuff you missed in history class. Sadly, I had not. But our discussion led me to your podcast archives. While listening to your 2016 Butter versus Margarine episode, I alternated between laughing and shaking my head in disbelief. Here's a link to the story about the proposals in Wisconsin. There are already laws in other states that restrict plant-based foods from using terms like meat or milk in their labeling. At least nobody is claiming that plant-based foods are made from inedible substances, and there do not appear to be any plans to require the products to be dyed pink. Love the podcast. Thanks for the work you do, Mike. Thank you so much, Mike, for this email. So in addition uh, to this proposed uh, Wisconsin law about plant-based products. There's also a thing that I had seen float across my Twitter feed uh, that was a very similar to the butter versus margarine episode, 14th Amendment argument about the legality of calling things like Impossible Burgers meat on their labeling. Right. And like my whole, I, I tweeted something to the effect of this is the exact same story as butter versus margarine, mm-hmm. which if you have not heard that episode is a previous episode where we talk about the development of margarine and then the legal war to try to keep it from being sold. Uh, Anyway, very similar stuff going on now involving things like soy milk and almond milk and rice milk and then impossible burgers and other uh, things that are called milk or burger or whatever but aren't actually made out of animal products. Um, which I find very hilarious. As far as I know, there's nowhere that's tried to outlaw these places yet, so we don't have, like, impossible burger smuggling, as happened with margarine. (laughs) I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you, Mike, for this note. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we are all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you will find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can also come and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. (laughs) 